Our speaker is Mike. Uh, with me, it's sheer personality. <laughs> A wonderful story about Lord Eccles, who introduced D.F. McKenzie for the first uh, Penitzi lecture at the British Library about 10 years ago. And he looked down where the speech was, and he looked up and he said, I don't understand a word of this. <laughs> he then drank the speaker's glass of water and sat down. <laughs> the speaker has already drunk his glass of water and looks at things. Welcome to Rare Book School Week 2, the complete service. Uh, the lectures this week will be Daniel Traster, who is a man with a funny hat in the back of the room, uh, speaking on Wednesday and uh, in the rotunda. Myself speaking also in the rotunda on Thursday. And this evening in his hereditary position on week two Monday, Greer Allen, who always speaks in Rare Book School because he's always excellent. And it's a great pleasure to welcome him here this evening. Thank you, thank you, Terry. It's always satisfying to address an RBS audience here in the epicenter of bibliographic studies under the appraising eye of yourself, the great panjandrum of rare books. But now, to begin. Solitary. Solitary and singing in the West, I strike up for a new world. Words of Walt Whitman should have been the motto on the great seal of the University of Chicago. So thought one president, and so say I. <laughs> it's what the University of Chicago has been about for more than a century. But so symbolic of its origin was the emblem actually chosen. Are we going to do something about the lights, do you think? So symbolic of its origin was the emblem actually chosen. The phoenix, that fanciful bird of the east, immolated, burned to char and ashes, yet arising reborn, full of life's power from the smoldering coals of the fire which had consumed it. And a phoenix indeed was the University of Chicago for predating the university we knew was there had been another, an earlier university, and it had failed, sponsored by local Baptists with meager resources in 1859. This struggling little university just hadn't the means to stay afloat. And by 1886, its doors were locked shut. Yet these overextended Baptists possessed two assets, two assets whose potential even in 1886 they did not fully envision. The first was an energetic young professor of biblical Hebrew on the faculty of their own theological seminary in Chicago. His name was William Rainey Harper. The second asset was this, The richest man in the Western world happened to be a devout Baptist, and his name was John Davidson Rockefeller. Had it not been for these two men, there would have been no University of Chicago. 
no University of Chicago Press, no, certainly no Chicago style manual. <laughs> no great Oriental Institute of Near Eastern Archaeology and Philology, and quite possibly a delay, for better or for worse, in man's achieving nuclear fission. So the university's renewal is the study of these two men, each with a strong and separate purpose, brought together by common compulsion to do something monumental. When William Rainey Harper was born in an Ohio town in 1856, here he is at the left, age 10, when Harper was born, America was a nation of small colleges. Yet by the time he died, he had spent 16 of his short 50 years creating the country's most original institute of advanced learning and had taken a lead in the maturing of America's academe. His mind, though it stored endless detail, also dreamed deep, comprehensive dreams. He was infinitely energetic and infinitely stubborn. Small wonder he earned a Yale PhD at 18. He'd been teaching Hebrew grammar to college students since he was 15. He shared the spreading conviction that by scrutinizing the words of ancient peoples, we could come to understand their intentions, to know their minds. In 1879, he found himself on the faculty of a Baptist seminary in Chicago. Not the sort to sit still, he corresponded with scholars the world over. He created summer courses, taught at Chautauqua. He was a productive scholar. Look, an inch-thick pack of library cards cataloged his work. He was a... He was a natural teacher and administrator, so the Baptists hoped he'd revive that failed university. But no, he accepted a chair at Yale. Here he is in top hat with some Yale divinity students. He ex accepted the chair at Yale because he sniffed the prospect of evolving a great graduate center for Near Eastern languages and literature, all his own. And this was a vision he had nursed for a long time. But he left Chicago with the impression that somehow if conditions were right, he might return. Make no little plans, as Chicago saying. A great architect there said, make no little plans. The thought was Harper's too, wherever he went. If Chicago's came up with the tangibles to build a great American university in the West, in those days Chicago was the West. If they raised the capital and showed they meant business, Harper would still be interested. The year 1886, uh, the new university was still six years from opening. Now, what about that other great human asset? What about Mr. Rockefeller? There, are several in, there were several interested in what Mr. Rockefeller might do for education. One was Harper himself, because Rockefeller was among those who had wanted Harper to take over the ailing old university. So the two remained friends when Harper accepted the chair at Yale. Now, in trying to salvage the old university, many had lowered their sights, quite content to aim at a small, solvent college. In fact, by the spring of 1889, there stood on the side of creating a great, adventurous, comprehensive university, there stood Harper almost alone. Everyone seemed to be pushing for a viable college. But in the end, of course, Harper talked them all round. Now, here the official who received this man Rockefeller's first generosity. Quote, 
After breakfast, we walked to and fro before his New York house on West 54th Street. It was understood that a million would be needed to fund the revived college, and that for success, we'd have to go before the good people of Chicago with the giving more than half done. I exclaimed, give 600,000, and everyone will say at the outset, this will not, cannot, must not fail. At a point near Fifth Avenue, Mr. Rockefeller stopped, faced me, and yielded the point. Never shall I forget the thrill of that moment. I have since then seen him give 10, 30, 100 million dollars, and no gift has ever thrilled me as did that first great gift of 600,000 on that May morning after those months of anxious suspense. But matching funds were slow to come. Marshall Field, the dry goods merchant, gave land along what was to become the midway of the Columbian Exposition, Chicago's World's Fair of 1893. Here Ferris's great wheel dwarfs a university hall at the left. But Field insisted that the capital to match Rockefeller's gift be raised before he deeded one square foot. The money came slowly, and it came because people knew that if they nailed down the first million, they'd get not only the land, but they might get that luminary harper back from the east to head it up. In fact, that sentiment reached the ears of Yale's president, who had poured time and money into getting an ancient language set up that would hold Harper. And when Harper admitted he was weighing the Chicago offer, the president grew livid. I had much rather you had never come to Yale at all than I to have had you remain until my efforts on your behalf had been completed and then leave for a new position. And a Yale college colleague got to Harper. You draw well, meaning you can attract funds and faculty, but my dear fellow, back of you and the rest of us, here is the one great power that lends to us more effectiveness than we contribute to it. It is not you, but Yale withdraws. Besides, <laughs> besides, few will care for a PhD or even a BA from that Chicago University. But above the recriminations, Harper kept alive the hope of building a new kind of university in the West. And all the while, he was making ever more specific his outline for it. Now listen to how he operated. His gift for carrying people along, like it or not. By 1890, the trustees were ready to call the place a university in order to get Harper. That was a concession. Okay, now it was Harper's move. He wrote, it doesn't seem possible to do what ought to be done with the money in hand. Already the universities talked of in connection with Yale, Harvard, Princeton, Johns Hopkins, and so forth. It seems a pity to wait for growth when we might be born full-fledged there must be assurance of another million. And Rockefeller temporized, you are the man for president, and I confidently expect we will add funds from time to time. But this was not cash on the barrel head. So Harper was seized with theological qualms. His orthodoxy had been attacked <laughs> in a review, and he suddenly grew coy about accepting a presidency where his faith was suspect. This was the first in a series of strange, contentious showdowns with the Rockefellers, mostly about making up deficits, which were to continue through Harper's life and to be resolved by cumulative gifts from that family to that university, totaling 80 millions. Of course, as soon as Rockefeller supplied the additional million, Harper's theological dilemma dissolved, and he signed on. You see, Harper knew there needed to be a formidable university in the heart of a growing nation. 
that the blueprint of his vision wasn't enough to attract the funds, that the way to do it was to conceive the master plan, get it built step by step, and as each building went up, each gifted teacher hired, the people who could afford it would see its worth and be persuaded to pay for it. Now, if you're a university president, that's hardly the way to dodge anxiety, but it built the University of Chicago. Now, Harper, now to Harper's blueprint. Quote, the work of the university shall be arranged under three general divisions. First, the university proper. That's the, what we usually think of faculty, physical plant, the care and feeding of students. Second, the university extension. That you, that's usually what universities get into only after they've been underway for a while. Continuing education, night courses for those who must work days. A new idea in America, which Harper borrowed from the English. Now, the third great segment of the plan was university publication work, printing and publishing all the official documents, special papers, books, journals, scientific reviews prepared or edited by the faculty, and collecting, in turn by exchange, the corresponding documents of other institutions, unquote. Later, Harper added a division called affiliations, a plan to work with other institutions, particularly in the Midwest, to raise standards a kind of responsibility which foreshadows Chicago's early leadership in the whole field of educational experimentation, research, and training. It's concerned for the primary and secondary schools which prepared people for institutions of higher learning. The point is that supporting regional schools and colleges, extending the university to working adults, and establishing a press, three matters dearest to Harper's heart, were genuine innovations in drawing up the blueprint for an American university. They showed a responsibility till then assumed only by institutions with historic roots. Perhaps it was brash and arrogant for Harper to insist on these from the outset, but the phoenix, remember, was fully formed at birth. It seems a pity to wait for growth when we might be born full-fledged. Arrogant? We saw arrogance in that Yale professor who tried to hold Harper in the East it's not you who attract my boy, it's Yale. In fact, arrogance is a useful index. By comparing such anecdotes, we see subtle differences and come to read the essential characters of institutions. Let me share a tale of peculiar Chicago arrogance, and strangely, too, it is Yale-connected. Early in 1972, I was back in Chicago after six months on the job in New Haven. Sue was opening her exhibition of Victorian publishers' bindings in the Regenstein Library, in the Regenstein Library in Chicago's campus. It was a grand affair, and for us it was old home week. Then a faculty friend sidled up to me, smarting because Yale had just lured away some of his junior people, and he was trying to involve me in, in an absurd retributive raid upon my new employer. Where you're not really going to stay at Yale, and his tone grew confidential. Yale's provincial, not a great international university like Chicago or Berkeley or Oxford or Harvard. It's it's provincial. Okay, two years go by. I'm watching Jacob Bronowski do his Ascent of Man series on TV. He's telling how nuclear concepts were developed by Göttingen professors on train rides to and from pre-Hitler Berlin. He's saying, now the German universities were provincial universities. Göttingen was a provincial university, like Cambridge in England or Yale in America. <laughs> <sighs> 
the point's contestable. But one, th- but one thing's for sure. My friend was touched by the same Chicago determination, call it arrogance, which let Harper insist from the outset on being part of the universal confraternity of scholarship, on elevating regional education, on starting out with a first-line learned press, and on making a commitment to adult education before he even had a faculty. Yes, before he had a faculty. The initial money was coming in, the land was secure, buildings were growing up. The number of student applications was was alarmingly large. In five years, we'll have more students than Harvard or Yale. The only thing which kept the numbers within bounds were stringent admission standards. Many were sent back to high school for more work. Though junior faculty were signing on still, eight months before the doors were to open, not one department head had been appointed. The people Harper wanted, he wouldn't even try to shake loose for the going rate of 6000 a year. A half dozen he hoped would join him were already themselves college presidents. So he got the trustees to bend the rules, offered 7000 so he'd feel right about inviting senior faculty. And he got a large portion of those he went after. Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, had just opened its doors, so faculty hadn't the chance to form ties and allegiances. From Clark came 15 <laughs> and and a permanent legacy of bad blood between the schools. <laughs> now it was July of 92. Classes were to start in October. The more affluent Chicago citizens, alert now to the remarkable asset burgeoning in their midst, had raised a million dollars supplementary building fund to provide nine new permanent edifices, but nothing for physical training or the libraries. So a temporary building was planned. Started in September, finished in three months, a single-story brick on 20,000 square feet of what was later cleared to make a graceful Gothic courtyard. The north end was fitted up for women's physical culture. On the east, the printing office and the press. The general library on the south, back-to-back with the men's gym. It was all gone in a decade. Left this open court and the press had got a proper home elsewhere. Listen to this early history. Not having funds to expend on establishing the press, the university made arrangements with outside parties to set it in motion, later taking it over and conducting it as a regular part of its work. D.C. Heath and Company managed the book distribution. But in office files I inherited, I found a sheet. It was the instrument conveying printing machinery from an outside party back to the university proper. In 1899, and it was signed R.R. Donnelly. But despite these makeshift beginnings, the press in its first four years had set out on a program for which it remains preeminent among university presses. It started a dozen journals. Seven of them survive today. And here's a sampling of some of the many published by the press. The journals were to be the tangible fruits of the scholarly life. Because despite the debate that tears at universities, publish or perish, the gifted humane teacher versus the laboratory grind, despite all this, Harper made his position quite clear. Promotion of young faculty would depend, quote, more upon the results of their work as investigators than upon the efficiency of their teaching, although the latter will by no means be overlooked, unquote. And this priority, with occasional outcroppings of opposition answered by simulated reform, this preference has persisted. It explains the university's preponderantly graduate student body. 
It accounts for a high per capita rate of breakthrough, the plethora of Nobel Prize winners, and the feeling of ongoing change and reform with attendant hoopla, which has set the place apart from its peers for so much of its existence. In a decade, we said the press had a new home. Here in 1902, they're laying the cornerstone. At the left, an early press director wipes the mortar-smirched trowel. There's Harper, third from the left, and Rockefeller himself in the top hat. It was the 10th anniversary of the university. The press building was completed. We see it here with its horse-drawn delivery wagon, later with its open motor van, and, as it appears today, a Dutch guild hall among the leafage now housing the bookstore. But that first de decade was all meaningful to Harper, and he embarked upon the most ambitious venture. It was to celebrate scholarly accomplishments of the faculty. Financially, disaster. He dropped $50,000 on it, but he had no regrets. With only five years left in his life, he had brought off the university of his dreams, new, original, full of life's power, and here was proof of it the decennial publications of the University of Chicago. Now, by way of illustration, witness a commencement of that era. There were four a year. Harper broke the academic year into quarters. You could finish coursework at your own pace, and the university was there in session year-round for your use. When you were done, you simply graduated at the next quarterly commencement. And here's one. And there's Harper with uplifted face, front row, somewhat hidden, listening to the speaker. Now, one of those decennial books was Harper's own report of the president. And you know what that report was? It was a bibliography of all the publishing, books, articles, reports, anywhere, of all faculty members done during the first decade of the university's life. Another one of the series carried a Harper article, The Structure of the Text of the Book of Amos, with Hebrew at the left facing the English. Now, that commencement speaker to whom Harper was listening was Albert Michelson, who was a man who had just measured the speed of light. And, of course, his article appeared in one volume of the decennial publications. And with Michelson and Harper on that platform is this man, distracted, perhaps, by his own ruminations on the place of the child in our changing society. The work of John Dewey is still read with interest. The press keeps it in print. He's blamed for the ills of progressive education. But his idea put into work in the university's own laboratory school was first make a good citizen of the child, give it the full experience of living, let it make things, even mistakes, and that bud of natural civilized gentility which is within each of us will open and disclose the perfect flower. In another decennial book, James Breasted writes on Near Eastern history using both Syriac and Egyptian on one spread. So we see how scholarship, particularly linguistic research in exotic languages, demanded a range of alphabets and expertise in setting them. Those weren't the days when you could set Aramaic or Urdu on your home computer. And, Har and Harper and the people he drew round him were not about to wait dockside while a packet ship steamed between New York and some scholarly printing center in Europe circulating proof. That explains the page you've been looking at. It's from the first issue of the Manual of Style, which grew into America's foremost editorial guide and a consistent bestseller since 1906. It spawned 
spin-offs themselves commercial successes, but it all started with basic editorial rules and showings of type from the plant. Because the philological and mathematical demands for on-the-spot production developed the most extensive library of special characters held by any American university printer. And that cabin, in that cabinet were countless type matrices whose designs were first commissioned and development costs borne by the press. In addition, the press acquired foundry type from other sources. The Egyptian hieroglyphic font, drawn under the supervision of Oxford's great Orientalist, Sir Alan Gardner, is a pleasure to peruse even for one who cannot comprehend the language. Well, Harper's quest for Near East philology to unlock insights hid in the writings of the ancient this determination produced two great constituencies in the university. One, the formidable divinity school. Its faculty, like other, its faculty, like all good researchers, were suspicious of secondary scholarship. This mistrust of inherited opinion brought to bear on newly unearthed manuscripts produced fresh American language translations of the Bible. Well, a publisher gets hold of a thing like this, the marketing possibilities become endless. Break out the Psalms, break out the Apocrypha, New Testament, Old Testament, put them all together. Small, large, leather bind, cloth bind. These books kept the press solvent for decades. The other product of Harper's devotion to the ancient Near East was the Oriental Institute. The phrase Lux ex orienta, a light shines out of the east, was incised into the cornerstone of its first home. From the outset, it stayed the country's foremost center for research and teaching in Near Eastern archaeology and language. Its founder, James Breasted, was Harper's protege, originally pointed for, toward divinity. So many Orientalists of that generation began as divines and swerved. <laughs> Harper brought him to Berlin. Every incipient Orientalist had to study in Berlin. <coughs> they produced Troy's excavator, Schliemann, and most of the scholarship was German. So while President Harper talked with Berlin professors and brought, brought massive collections of books to fill the empty shelves back in Chicago, Young Breasted acquired Egyptian and the other scholarly paraphernalia. So was nurtured the man who, with more Rockefeller money, was to bring the Oriental Institute into being. A few years ago, I drifted into one of its empty classrooms. This met my eye, and I greeted a longtime faculty friend bustling about the halls, getting ready to fly to a site in the ancient world. Perhaps again, she'd have to halt some agribusiness bulldozer just short of obliterating the mound, which, when properly dug, would reveal threads from the lives of men lost in fugitive time. But you don't begin to dig, of course, until you've won a place in the native hearts until you're shown with pride the local schoolroom, till the children hang round to watch what you're doing, and your bid come to the village festivities. And it pains you to leave this exotic world for the drudgery of preparing findings for publication. But publish you must. Here's, here's an aerial survey of potential sites done in 1935. And here's the book I cut my eye teeth on, that fold-out, that fold-out is five foot eight inches across. And one long frieze is handled by a sequence of successive following spreads. Imagine what we had to do when, 
in the mid-1950s, the Iranian government asked us to print an edition in Farsi. First of all, like other Near Eastern books, it would have to be bound at the right edge, not at the left edge, where we bind European books, but on the right. And I found no set of commonly understood terms to describe the difference in the way these two sorts of books open and flow. So you can imagine phone conversations with American printers and binders involved in that conversion. Now, in addition, in addition to great masses of documentation like the Persepolis book we just examined, there's a publication, there's publication fallout, speculation, essays which build on the findings. Else, how would Chicago have remained by far the largest American university press in new titles and in sales? Big isn't automatically best. That's not the contention. It's simply, I'm simply trying to explain how these things come to pass. They occur where a number of academic constituencies, each with a history of continuity, is bent on issuing information. That builds backlists, attracts the work of scholars in other universities, and taps a generous well of new manuscripts. And where, on top of that, there's a proud tradition for interdepartmental cooperation, projects proliferate even further. Now, the presence at Chicago of a clutch of brilliant minds, neither historian alone, nor philosopher alone, nor classicist alone, but all three together brought forth the books on the, that's this slide. And some of these people, herded by a gifted editor-poet, Hayden Carruth, launched the only series I've watched hold both editorial and graphic, graphic integrity through a significant stretch of time. The first of the Complete Greek Tragedies was issued in 1953 and last appeared six years later. And all the while, the covers of these nine fascicles remain unaltered for 35 years. Of course, the designs by Sue Allen were themselves the real bulwarks against depredation. And at the end, they came together, united in a case-bound set. Now, lexicography, dictionary-making, is very big at Chicago. Thanks. It grew, it grew, too, out of the Oriental Institute, and it proliferated. First came the Assyrian Dictionary, launched in 1921. Since that time, two other Oriental language dictionaries have been started, the Demotic and the Hittite, and to this day, no single project among them has been completed. No little plans. <laughs> But meanwhile, Sir William Craigie, under whose editorship the new Oxford English Dictionary had been completed, came over to Chicago in the mid-twenties and developed the Dictionary of American English, which appeared in 1938. It simply deals with English as, as it is used in America. But in doing this, Craigie trained Mitford Matthews, who in turn was responsible for the Dictionary of Americanisms. Now, Americanisms are those words which came into the language on this side of the, of the Atlantic, or which take on unique meanings over here. Well, let us return for a moment more to the Oriental, Oriental Institute. I must confess to an understandable affection for the place. It was there I got to know my wife, Sue, the staff artist who kept bringing over these beautiful things to the printing department in order to have them typeset, printed, and bound. And we were both active in the wider graphic community of Chicago. The Society of Typographic Arts was doing wonderful things. 
Bob Middleton and others were teaching and Sue designed the STA newsletter and we printed it. And this sort of thing led to the printing department's involvement with other institutions in the city. The Newberry Library was among them. Now what do you do? What do you do when you're putting on a show containing the books of two important live Chicago collectors? And either is going to be offended if he's made to follow the other in the catalog. You make a do-si-do, a back-to-back catalog, so there are two front covers, two openings, and no tail end at all. (laughs) Many of the things you've been seeing were printed in that same plant into which I first walked one summer's day in 1947, and it had changed little from the place it was on the day it started, back before the turn of the century. In the composing room, they were continuing to handle metal galleys as they did well into the 1970s. The same mealy flatbed cylinder presses with fly deliveries were clanking away in the basement as they'd been since the building went up in 1902. But by the late 1960s, one 50-inch offset perfecting press was brought in to do the work of the four old clunkers. But I still remember photographs sent down from the university's observatory at Williams Bay, Wisconsin for the Astrophysical Journal. They were light diffractions and each discovered the chemical composition of a star. The relative intensities of the spectroscopic bars were critical and their subtly varying positions on the spectra revealed via this journal that the star was moving away in what has come to be perceived as an exploding universe. So these photographs had to be matched on press exactly. You checked press sheets against original photos, not the engraver's proof. 200-line screen letterpress. That's 40,000 little etched copper mountains with flat tops per square inch printed down on the best gloss white papers we could find. And do you know what finally beat us? Guess. There are printers out there. Guess what beat us? One word ink. They didn't grind the ink fine enough anymore. Lumps clogged the spaces between the dots. We went to coarser screens trying to for a clean image. Finally, we threw in the sponge and went to offset. Now, back to publishing. Let's look at selected university presidents, editors, and press directors to see what was published when they held sway. Gordon Lang is here. He was general editor from 1908 until 1940. In these years was built the base of books in a field in which the university has pioneered and held preeminence. Early on, there were concerns, then a separate academic division, and finally the first building ever dedicated to the social sciences. It started when under the faculty came people like Sophonisba P. Breckenridge. You don't forget a name like that. She was the first woman admitted to the Kentucky Bar of Law and with Edith Abbott with ties to Hull House and the progressive political movements at the dawn of the century. She was in on the founding of the School of Social Service Administration. They produced this series of documents which had impact and helped force change. Efforts continued and burgeoned. In 1929, preoccupation with medical costs seems perfectly normal today. This is another one of their series, sociological series. 
1929, Robert Maynard Hutchins was named president. He was under 30 years of age. He posed as a revolutionary, so in many ways he was William Rainey Harper incarnate. He spent money he didn't have, then tried to find it, and he tugged again at the thread which has run through that university as through no other, that the idea that even in this day all knowledge can and should be integrated and codified. Harper's decennial publications smacked of that, but Hutchins carried it further. Witness his love affair with the Encyclopedia Britannica, which he had the university buy and operate as an independent venture. And the great books, brainchild of himself and party faithfuls like philosophy vendor Mortimer Adler. An encyclopedia of the... <laughs> an encyclopedia of the Univide Sciences was another try, published by the press. It's a collection of notable essays. Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolution. Logician Rudolf Carnap, linguist Leonard Bloomfield, John Dewey, Otto Neurath, sounds like Harper's decennial all over again. And like Harper, Hutchins was concerned with early education because it underpinned advanced study. But he found the whole American sequence, eight years of primary, four of high school, four of college, he found this out of sync with the growth of the mind. So if they showed they were prepared, he let kids into college, Chicago's college after two years, of high school. This meant a fresh look at their books and the new plan texts were brought into being. They were designed in the 30s by Egbert Jacobson of Container Corporation. They cut new swaths in lucidity and legibility. The directorate of Joe Brandt is remembered for a sleeper which lay in his manuscript vault unnoticed for a year and when finally published, sold 140,000 copies. A classical economist, Friedrich Hayek, saw in the emerging wartime powers given the federal government in the 1940s a potential for the same sort of unscrupulous takeover which had driven thousands from Europe and for the destruction of which we were, ironically, relinquishing our freedoms. Look hard at your enemy. He's what you may become. When I look at the face of Joe Brandt's successor, Bill Couch, I see a stubborn, pugnacious man, unable to resist controversy. He published this. The author was an American officer who served as General Yamashita's defense lawyer in the military tribunal trying war crimes. The book's message was, don't, don't mock the name of American justice with a phony trial. If you're hell-bent on killing an enemy general, don't call it justice. Well, you can imagine the cry raised by politicians riding the patriotic wake back to Washington. Couch loved it. It sold books. And besides, Chicago had always been in the progressive, self-critical vanguard. But then, then a young University of California PhD had done his thesis on the West Coast treatment of American nationals of Japanese descent during the war property confiscation, incarceration. Like Herod hunting for the babe, the lives of countless loyal innocents were maimed. When the chancellor of the University of California learned of Couch's intent to publish, he got to Hutchins. You know, I'm all for the truth, but good God, can you imagine what the trustees will do to me if that book's published? And they find out that the work was done here. The political witch hunts of the early 50s were starting. So Hutchins went to Couch. Oh, buddy, us liberals got to stick together. Let's not stab my friend in California. Don't publish the book. And Couch answered, the typeset 
the book's on schedule, you'll have to fire me to stop it. So the book came out. No waves. Good reviews. Fur was smoothed in California. Hutchins took a leave of absence, dreamed up more truth-seeking foundations with Ford money. A year passed. Couch gets a note from the vice president. Dear Bill, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. Don't come back in the morning. Well, we'll forward any personal effects we find in your desk. And who do you think they hired as Couch's successor? The guy who wrote Americans Betrayed. So, so in finding the best possible person for the job, and that he was, they also diffused the forces, force of Couch's argument that he had been fired because he didn't succumb to administrative pressures to suppress the book. Well, Mort Bronson's was director for less than two years. His star was rising, but he died young. Now, don't get the idea all Couch's books were political. Here's the collaboration of an Ecuadorian anthropologist with an American photographer, the record of a disappearing way of life in a little mountain town. Heretofore, scholarly presses had documented this sort of thing only in crowded type pages without photographs. It appeared now for the first time in a form to which we have become so accustomed that its pioneering singularity is hardly noticed today. In the early 50s, Roger Shug arrived as director with experience at Klopf and Rutgers. Historian and professional publisher, he was able to articulate the role of the scholarly publishing house in a world of media change. And though Shug was not about to challenge Yale's preeminence as a factory for collating, editing, and publishing massive series of historical and literary manuscript material, he did collaborate with the University of Virginia in getting out the papers of James Madison, and with a British university on Edmund Burke's papers. In fact, the development of shared publishing ventures was one of Rogers' great forward steps. It seemed to partake of Harper's idea, the affiliations, the work with other institutions, the idea that if you, you're a great university only when you view yourself as a chapter of the international brotherhood of learning. What grew out of this, of course, was a program of imports, books which would not have been manufactured in this country nor have been accessible to most American book buyers. And two, these imports broadened the field of books which could be tapped when in 1956 Roger decided Chicago's got to be the first university press into paperbacks in a big way. So the Phoenix books. Here on the left are two British Museum monographs converted to Phoenixes on the right. And more of them. That infant on Watson's behaviorism, a convenient baby in our crib to take a snapshot of, is now a grown professional with an MIT doctorate. <laughs> Morris Phillipson, current head of the press, came in the late 60s out of basic books in New York, a philosopher, a Tolstoy specialist, a novelist. And he joined a community of readers. In Chicago, people read. Older people, middle-aged people, <laughs> the students, of course, younger people. Everybody's reading. <laughs> they browse the local bookstores, and there are many to browse in. <laughs> or wander among the leafy glades of the campus to watch kids throwing pebbles into botany ponds. It's a peaceful oasis set in the midst of a teeming city. Harvard, Yale, both in cities smaller than Chicago, 
are high-rise and striated with seams of urban intensity and nervousness. That's great. But under the gaze of Linnaeus, Morris could have walked along the midway of the old World's Fair of 93, now a mile-long grassy plaisance, and come upon Laredo Taft's statue, where the hooded figure of time stands apart to watch man struggle out of nothingness, to revel in the glory, only to descend. Mortality, woe, all is vanity. The fountain of time is the conscience of the university, made real. Finish your work before the deadline. <laughs> now, I don't know what Morris Philipson thought when first he wandered round the neighborhood looking at the buildings at Rockefeller Chapel or at Frank Lloyd Wright's familiar Roby House. Clearly, it prepared him to publish Gene Block's book about the community. And there, on page 44, is 5733 Kimbark Avenue. I'll let you guess who lived in that house for 15 years. It's in the book only because it remained authentic, and that because we were those kids on the block who didn't have the wherewithal to tear off the front porch and modernize it. In the late 1970s, I asked Morris, what do you consider the best books Chicago ever issued? His an the answer is easy, he said. See our ad in this week's TLS, Man's Role in Changing the Face of the Earth. So here they are in the Times Literary Supplement. The Battered Child, first to call attention, public attention to child abuse years back. And Kleitman on the Nature of Sleep. These last two, by the way, are samples of a cons constant corpus of books to come out of the Division of Biological Sciences, which for years had operated immense laboratories and a medical school with a giant urban hospital. I'm afraid I've given science a short shrift. In 1916, the Prince of Wales, who later briefly became king, Edward VIII, visited the campus with great to-do. There he is in the center, in the broad-brimmed hat. All this is by way of introducing his nephew by marriage, the Duke of Edinburgh, here with President George Beadle, Nobel geneticist, before the plaque which commemorates December 2nd of 1942, when those little rods were pulled out of these little graphite blocks, packed in this handball court under the grandstand, and lo, the one fateful physical act of the century. Today, Henry Moore's reminder marks the birthplace of nuclear fission. Is it an atomic bomb? Is it a cloud? Armorial helmet? A skull? It stands there next to the library, and the press kept busy issuing the collected papers of those who brought it all to pass. Who could have foreseen when Morris Philipson became director in the late 60s that he'd remain to thrive there even today, having augmented the press's unquestioned primacy in its field. We see him here some five years back celebrating the centenary of the press and his quarter century then as its director. Simply to leaf through a recent catalog is to become aware of the presence of a, the epicenter of the press, of a mind no longer of one individual but a collective in staff intelligence shaped by the vision of its director yet informed by the press's long traditions in response to the expectations of its rather learned TLS reading audience. Yes, 
and perhaps the touch of that old Chicago arrogance which drives the peruser to wonder almost aloud, is there no corner of inquiry or analytic endeavor into which that press will not venture? Now, there are many in this audience partial to the book Beautiful, and we haven't even gone into that. See this by Vyotish Pricey, a bohemian designer worked at the press in the 20s, an early AIGA 50 books exhibit in 1926 show. Here's the chapter opening of it. Warren Chappell designed this book on the American painter, and the phoenix seal he drew especially for its title page became for me the best rendering in the whole aviary. A book of houses in the old Northwest Territory, that's Ohio up through Wisconsin, the architectural photographers would go to a town to snap a house. They'd wait sometimes four or five days a week till the light was just right. It's early offset printing on gloss enamel paper, not bad for one strike of black ink back in 1948. The Lord to me a shepherd is, want therefore shall not I. He in the folds of tender grass doth cause me down to lie. A facsimile of the Bay Psalm book, America's first printed book. Well, big time New York art director came out to us yokels in Chicago to judge the Society of Typographic Arts annual exhibition and looking at the quaint wobbly type of the facsimile says, that's a nice effect. How did you get it? <laughs> the press was for a time into co-publishing in the field of typography. See the gold spine on that big black book? Well, the British publisher showed us their binding, clubby, condensed letters, and we said, no way. So we made reverse color photostats of this title page, and from these letters composed all the spine information by faking and paste up and reduction. I never got up the nerve to ask Reynolds Stone what he thought of the way we converted his letters to spine stampings. Then John Getz came in 1958 with, from the University of California Press. He brought with him a friendship with Adrian Wilson, who did this and a number of graceful things for the press. And look who's here, the troubadour, the queen, Jonah disgorged, and Fritz Cradle brought them all together in this book. But John Getz's proudest achievement was Homer's Iliad with drawings by Leonard Baskin. The book won great honor nationally and abroad. And to shape the appearance of now more books than ever before, there's today's design staff, flanked on your left by Joe Aldorfer and on your right by Bob Williams. And they have planned such intellectual adventures as this the complete works of Giuseppe Verdi, and faculty member Norman McLean's novel, A River Runs Through It, autobiographically based, turned into a movie by Robert Redford, giving actor Brad Pitt his first real break. Now, that's all history. Surely a personal view, but history. You're going to get a little encore now, a short coda which is not history. You've been looking at the products of designers but what do you know about the designers themselves? When you walk into the press's current home across from the old building and examine the slate carved by Father Edward Cadditch, you might get lucky and be introduced to one of the design staff whose faces we have just seen. 
but meeting them will hardly give, hardly give you an inkling of how they, as Chicago designers, really work, how they really feel. You see a designer starting on a specific book, riffling through the manuscript, loves to drift into a sort of fog of basic research, to be wrapped in a cocoon of creativity, to dwell a while in something like the inspirational Eden foliated with the leaves of old books, some so withered and frayed with age that we marvel at their defiance of time. Others seeming as fresh and green as the day they were printed. And in this subtle retreat, one is tempted to pluck the pipe founders, arabesques and flowers, which provide opportunities for arrangement and rearrangement so that they seem almost to rival the rich florid graces of the natural garden. And in this garden of the mind, the boundaries which separate art and nature are thin. With strength of purpose, the insect crawls laboriously around the decaying stump. And even the quadrupeds, in this case the boxwood block of Thomas Buick's racehorse, even the quadrupeds, in quite another sense and dimension, dwell in the wood. Then, there are the founder's type samples to look at. There can be no more delightful way to pass the hours than to leaf through them with hopeful, critical eyes. What type will not gain some increase of merit? What face will not suggest a singular possibility when it is viewed in such a setting as this, or this, or and yes, it can be endlessly enjoyable. Two, there are the simple colors and textures and patterns of the everyday work things, which are a delight to view again. The motley produce of the cloth and paper mills, patterned papers from across the face of the world, papers of today and papers of yesterday. And then, of course, there's a great body of books just made for designers to leaf through on occasions like this, some of these, you might think, have nothing to do with the design of a book at hand. But they do. They're inked down on paper, rich. They sharpen the nostrils. They fire up the soul. And the designer who longs for further treats will draw upon the masters who went before in time, the Venetians and Cobden Sanderson. And to stay in touch with the present, there's the work of peers. So they prowl the bookstore shelves leaf through bookshow catalogs. And finally, there are the things, the familiar, favorite things the designer loves to look at time and time again. Brilliant things and simple things. Big things, and then again, little things. Until at last, after spending hours in those rich, random, perusing pursuits, the spirit emerges refreshed, ready to begin wrestling with the problem at hand to start envisioning the book from the manuscript which has all the while been waiting. Thank you.